title of my message this morning is The Testimony of the Church Attacked. And just follow me as I read uh, that scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 to 5. But the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. May God add a blessing to uh, his word this morning. In our last two sessions, we spent time looking at that climactic declaration of the fundamental nature of the church in chapter 3, verses 14 or 15 and 16. And we saw that God has ordained the local assembly to propagate and to defend his truth, God's truth. And the local assembly there, the local church is seen as a pillar in support of truth. In our last session of those two, we looked at verse 16 and we saw there a glorious creedal statement about the Lord of the church, our Redeemer. And so Paul passes this on to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus at the time, so that he himself, as a minister of the gospel there, and the saints might be encouraged in the faith. And so those two verses, verses 14 and 16, were like, no doubt, a breath of fresh air to them in the midst of many other issues that were going down at the time in the church at Ephesus that were plaguing this assembly. And as we have seen in the first three chapters, this, these things proved challenging to them just as they would prove challenging to us uh, here in this day. And he addressed them because these issues were, as we said last week or last time, were hijacking the fundamental mission of the church and the fundamental message of the church. These issues may well be seen as secondary, but if they were not checked, they would mar and ruin the testimony of the assembly. And so he confronts, first of all, false teaching in the church, and he reminds the men to also pray impartially, as you'll remember, their prayers were quite partial. And he also speaks to the ladies about appropriate dress when coming together with the saints. And he instructs also the assembly on the different gender roles within the assembly. And then lastly, he clarifies what church leadership is all about and the qualifications of those church leaders. And Paul knows what he has said will be challenging, but he also knows that he has many more challenging things to say in chapters 4 to 6, and if you want to go further, into a second letter that he writes to Timothy. And so right in the middle of this, what Paul has done in 3, 14 to 16 is he encourages the saints with this glorious declaration that we looked at the last two times we were together, and he calls them 
the household of God, of which we are also, we as a local church, are the household of God, or a better interpretation of that, the living God's household. And so he kind of brings them back to basics. He brings the church back to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And he describes the church in glorious terms, and then he describes the Saviour, Jesus Christ, in glorious terms as well. And so Paul encourages them with these words. But not only is Paul an encourager, he is also a realist. Because he knows that many difficulties in the church will come about because of traces of the believer's fallenness or their unredeemed humanity will infiltrate the church and that's why Ephesus was not a perfect church and that's why no church is a perfect church because we are, putting it in colloquial term, a bunch of redeemed sinners but we still have that unredeemed flesh that we each have and that causes problems from time to time. So Paul knows this and so... He knows also that he's not finished with us yet. He's not finished with the Ephesian believers and as he is inspired by the word of God, he's not finished writing to even to us today yet. And so he warns us as he is inspired by the word of God. And that's what he does in the next three chapters. Now, thinking about this, over the years, many years that I have been in ministry, I have known people who have been hurt and disgruntled big time simply because their expectations of a local church have been way up here to the point of wanting it to be flawless or perfect. Now, they would not say that, of course. You even, you know, hey, no church is fair. Oh, yeah, we know that. They say, but underneath they have this expectation of a flawless church. But as you know, if anyone expects a local church to be perfect, they're going to be sorely disappointed, right? After all. Look at our church, we might say. We don't argue about anything, do we? We all agree with each other. We never have issues about forgiving one another or over that. There's no division. There's no social cliques or partiality in our church. We have it all together, right? Now, folks, my tongue-in-cheek point is this. Just because a church, including ourselves, is a gospel-preaching church, a Christ-exalting church, and a Bible-believing church, it does not mean that there will be no controversy, no division, no struggles, and no false members. Even though the glorious local church, the living God's household, is earmarked as God's pillar and support of divine truth, it is not perfect. No matter how faithful any church is at going all out to be a true pillar and support of truth, which is what we should be, by the way, there will always be challenges and trials that, we, that demand we be on guard against false teaching, false teachers and false members. And so after this beautiful word of encouragement from the Apostle Paul, 
he returns to warn the assembly of the dangers already spoken of, actually, right in chapter 1. He brought the subject up. This is one of the first warnings that he gave in chapter 1, and that is of false teachers. So what I want to do now, let me outline this passage before we dig into the text. There are five parts to this, uh, this text of five verses, and each verse corresponding, corresponds to each of the parts. The first one is in verse 1, and here we see that Paul describes the Christians who claim to be Christians but they are not. They claim to be members of the local church, but in fact they're not even Christian. They are false Christians. And verse 2 describes the character of those who who seduce and teach falsehood in the local church. The third part in verse 3, we see a kind of a progression from those who are false members, false members, Uh, And then we see false teachers, and then we see in verse 3 all about the false teaching, because in verse 3 he describes specifically the false doctrine being used to deceive and to suck in the people who meet there. And then we come to verse 4, the fourth part. This tells us the remedy for that false teaching, which is the truth of God's word, which of course is always the solution to any false teaching, right? And then finally in verse 5, Paul shows us how the truth of God's word is the basis of living and enjoying everything God has provided for us for our benefit. And in this case, be it food or marriage, he says it is sanctified, it is created for us. So there's the outline, but all this boils down even further to two basic points. His first concern is that we would be on guard for false professions, false teachers, and false teaching. That's his first point. And his second point is that we will be ready to combat false professions, false teachers, and false teaching with the truth of God's Word. So let's dig into the text now, and may the Spirit of God direct our hearts and minds as we look into this warning passage. My first point is up there is that though the local church is wonderful, there will always be those who are false members. This verse, by the way, first verse, is key to understanding this whole five verses. Paul gets really specific, and what he does here in his first verse is he highlights the first of these dangers that we must be on guard against. He gives, a, first of all, a timeline, and he mentions that this will happen in latter times. And when we see the word latter times, it's not referring to a yet future day, Okay? The last days. This can be interpreted and seen as really any time since Jesus Christ, since the church was born, if you want to put it that way. But the main emphasis on this first, on this first verse is what the Spirit of God expressly says through the pen of the Apostle. And this is basically what it says, and I'll make it very, very plain. He says, don't be surprised by apostasy. Don't be surprised when someone says they believe in Jesus, but do not really. Don't be surprised when someone even joins the church and then abandons it, leaves it. Don't be surprised by some who claim to be Christian and somewhere down the track, maybe when trial or tragedy hits their road, they turn their back on Christ and on the church. Don't be surprised at that. 
Paul says, yes, the church is the pillar and ground of truth, but don't be surprised if some turn their back on Christ and then abandon the faith altogether. Don't be surprised at that because it's going to happen in the latter days. Now, you will all know people who fall into this category, right? I'm sure you do. Those once who professed to know Jesus Christ as Saviour, maybe at a young age, raised a hand or signed a form or, or whatever. You'll know people like that. And now, those same people show no evidence at all of ever belonging to him at any time. And you know what? This is so discouraging. It can be. And might I say, the closer these people are relationally to us, the more discouraging to us it can be, and it is. But the level of discouragement, can I say, moves up several notches if we live not expecting that as part of life in a fallen world in local church. In other words, you better believe it because it's going to happen. Why? Because the Word of God says it's going to happen. Now, I'm sure most of us could tell pitiful and sad stories of those whom we knew well and those who had professed Christ and some maybe even have baptized. But years and circumstance have seen them drift away from Christ and eventually reject Him and His church. But the Spirit expressly says via the explicitly says via the apostle Paul here don't be surprised when that happens this is not new by the way this is not new Jesus said that many people would be deceived and led astray like this he says that over and over you read Matthew 24 the Apostle Paul has already told the elders at the Ephesus church back in Acts chapter 20 that even from amongst you, savage wolves will come and not spare the flock. He's already told them this. He warned the Colossian believers and other assembly that false teachers would lead some of the flock astray. Peter and Jude also warned the people of God about the danger of falling away is the term that is used. In other words, folks, Paul is retelling the local church that no matter how faithful you are, your church is not perfect where everyone, every single person who gathers with you is irreversibly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not be the case. There's always a danger of false teaching doing damage and often proving where some church members really are spiritually. It really sorts them out. Now, as I say this, let me clarify something. When Apostle Paul says that some will fall away from the faith, he does not mean that someone who has genuinely trusted in Christ and who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that that person can fall away and lose the salvation. Paul is not saying that here. Paul is speaking about people who make a profession of faith and then later on prove their lack of authenticity. They prove their lack of genuine commitment by failing to persevere in Christ. And so what they do, they bail out. 
By their falling away, as we have in our text, they reveal that they never really experienced God's true, powerful, eternal, saving grace in the first place. You know other passages of Scripture that can verify this. John chapter 10 talks about, no one shall pluck them out of my hand. And there's like a double security there. Jesus says, no man can pluck them out of my hand, and no one can take them out of my Father's hand. Philippians 1 verse 6, He that is God, He that has begun a good work in you will bring it to perfection in the day of Jesus Christ. When God works in the heart and soul and regenerates and saves a person, folks, that person will be an overcomer and will persevere. Yes, have ups and downs like we all do. Yes, be like the Apostle Peter and deny the Lord perhaps and drift away, but there will be a general bent towards pleasing and honouring God but not those who fall away as we have here. The Apostle John actually gives us a whole lot of traction on this truth in John 1, 1 John 2.19. Listen to how the Apostle describes this real tragedy, and it is. This is what he says in that verse. They went away from us. Here's the Apostle John talking about a local church and talking about people who fell away, okay? Mere professors. They went away from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It's not you. This happens. In other words... He was an assembly of the Lord's people, but they were, there were some among them who proved they did not genuinely belong to Christ. How was it shown? How was it proved? How was it shown that they didn't belong to Christ? He says here, when they left the church. Now we're not talking about here leaving one assembly and going to another. I'm talking about leaving the church general, leaving the faith. The NIV has a better translation here, a stronger word as it should be, where it falls away. They abandoned, cut off, walked away. They'll have all sorts of excuses. Oh, this brother here never spoke to me. Oh, they treated me badly or whatever. But they walk away. They renounce their fellowship with the church And by doing that, they renounced their fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is when they showed that they were not of us. These are those that Jesus describes, by the way, on another occasion, remember when he told the parable of the sower and the seed? In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, Jesus said that some of the good seed fell on what kind of ground? Some of the good seed fell on rocky ground. Remember that? And what happened to that seed? Oh, wow. It, it, it sprouted and it sprung up. And this is what Jesus is. Um, he said, those who fall on rocky ground, they are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. The same Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses in our text in First Timothy 4. As I said, the, the NIV has the word abandoned, which is kind of in our English understanding has a better uh, translation. And so Paul explains here how someone goes from being a mere professor or a professing believer to being someone who has turned their back on Jesus Christ. He's not explaining how someone loses his or her salvation. That is contrary to Scripture. 
Someone who's genuinely saved cannot lose their salvation. He explains the woeful journey of mere professors of Jesus Christ because you know what? Because these mere professors were not real possessors of him in the first place. And these folks are false members of the church. Then the text tells us this sad journey takes place. How does it take place? Pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You see that? So how is it that some will be enticed and fall away? You know, we have people to come along and you may have, have a, a member of the family, they hear the truth and, and, and so forth, and they, they respond uh, in the first time with maybe with some words or whatever. And how is it that those same people fall away to this extent? How come they abandon the faith? This is how they abandon the faith, by listening to false teaching. In other words, their deceived wills, their depraved wills, I'll just make it clear, I don't believe in a free will here. In our unregenerate state, we do not have a free will. When we were born in sin, we took on Adam's sinfulness and our wills were bound by sin. Okay? They were bound by sin. They were, they were in bondage to sin. And so that Bound will that is in bondage cannot in and of itself freely choose to please God. Cannot. It takes the regenerating work of the Spirit of God to come in and do its work so that will will respond with the faith that we have been given toward God. The only person that has a free will that we often hear bandied about is the Christian is the genuine believer because the genuine believer now has a free will to either please God or displease him. To please God or to grieve him. It's a bit like Adam before the fall. He had a free will. And so this is what the false member does. That's how he is enticed away. He listens to false teaching and responds to it. And, and this is so real in the local churches today, folks, where Satan, our arch enemy, he uses his demons and, and manipulative means and, and false teachers to deceive and to turn the hearts of the people away, to fall away. Some will fall away. And even... We see in the latter times when evil will be so rampant that devil and the demons will even endeavor, not that they will succeed, is to turn the hearts away of the God's elect. They can do some damage even to the believer. That's why we already had in this first epistle to Timothy the word straying in chapter 1 verse 6. This is where genuine believers stray after being seduced and succumbed to the teaching of false teachers. And then we have another word in chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul describes Demas and so forth, and he says, and he describes their lives having been made shipwreck. It's another word. And that's what happens when genuine believers pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They go astray, their, sh their lives end up being a shipwreck, or we can use another word that we know well, they are backslidden believers. But if they're genuine believers, they will persevere. I obviously believe, honestly believe the scripture teaches perseverance of the saints. 
And so let us be warned here, folks, as Christians, to sit under or give ear to false teaching that contradicts the truth of Scripture is to be taught by demons. You may think that's rather scary, but that's what it says here. It's to be taught by demons. And that puts our hearts and minds in serious jeopardy if we do that. You see, to be a true overcomer of this tirade of satanic attack, we need not mere professors, but we need to be possessors of Jesus Christ by God's grace alone through genuine repentant faith alone. But in all this, do not be surprised that some fall away. Okay, secondly, though the local church is wonderful, false teaching and teachers will always be present. Having identified the victims and the source of this falling away, Paul now highlights the nature of these false teachers. Teachers, and they, What they're characterized by is hypocrisy, lying, and seared consciences. You see that? That's what characterizes them. First of all, they're characterized by hypocrisy. That means that they may come across as good and upright and godly people and great communicators and very clever, but on the inside, folks, they are rotten to the core. A spiritually discerning person will see that it's in their own interest that they seek and they're not seeking the interests of the others. And usually, might I say, when it comes to false teasers, it's all about the dollars in the pocket. They also lie. They lie in order to draw gullible people into their web. They may be a pastor, they may be a seminary teacher or some other religious figurehead or some self-taught person, but they all have an underbelly of lies they use to get their way or their message across. And we ask, well, how come they go this far? What drives them to do this? It's because we see in the text here their conscience is desensitized. Their conscience over what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is error, has been so seared that they actually end up believing the lies that they purvey as being truth. And Paul says we must be on guard for these people ourselves. We must warn our people against them. And that's what I'm doing this morning. Let me say just this, if there ever was a day that these kind of people are running rampant, it is today. Go online and you can hear, and I'm going to name them, I don't mind, because these guys are deceivers, they're Satan's emissaries. Go online and you can hear the Rob Bells. Mirabel, man, he captured a huge part of the evangelical church 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Sounded good, excellent communicator, and sucked in many with his DVDs and very clever presentations. And today he denies the deity of Christ, he denies the need for salvation by faith and grace of God alone, and he's turned his back. But he still teaches. So you can go online, you can hear the Rob Bells, you can hear the Joyce Myers, you can hear the Joel Alsteins, and stacks of other false teachers like them. And even if we do not listen to them, their influence on the evangelical church is such that we will, at some stage or other, be confronted with their teaching, their hypocrisy. Their lies, fueled by their seared consciousness, we'll be confronted with it. 
And even in our ignorance, ignorance of the truth, because of that we can be caught up in going along with false teaching that these people originally purveyed without even knowing that's false. Whether it be the prosperity gospel movement or false views of God's sovereign role and our coming to saving faith, folks, what Paul says here is be on the alert as these men are emissaries of Satan and will go all out to drag you into their web of false belief. Thirdly, though the local church is wonderful, error in the church will often begin with seemingly insignificant matters. You realize that? So what Paul does here is he uses an example of what was actually going down in the Ephesians church. What was happening that some false teachers were teaching in the assembly. Now this could have been teaching privately, you know, a little holy huddle at the, uh, uh, whether in the church or, or, or not phoning them up, not emailing them either, but going around and seeing them. But they were teaching the believers in the church and all of that is dangerous and it could have been a more public forum, we're not sure, but they were teaching and from this false teaching, what we can ascertain is that false teachers generally are not balanced in their biblical approach to the life as a believer. In other words, they do not use the whole of Scripture. They usually have what we call pet hobby horses that they try and foist onto people because they love it and they come and they, they, they feed into this, their pet hobby horse time and time again. And here it's all about abstaining from certain foods and, and, and being celibate. In other words, not getting married. So we might say, well, okay, what's the big deal here? What is the big deal here? It's not that bad, is it? After all, I could understand if the apostle came down hard on those who deny the deity of Christ and, and those who deny the triune Godhead. And, and I can understand the apostle Paul if he came down hard on those who, who deny the existence of heaven and hell. But, but this, foods and, and just remaining single, what's the big deal? This is just a personal preference, so what's the big deal, we might say? But that folks, is exactly the ploy that Satan uses. He subtly uses elements of truth to mostly easily gain a foothold in people's minds. Because after all, there is some truth in this. There could well be value in abstaining from certain foods. I need to abstain from a whole lot more than I do. It can't help me in the ministry, right? And we're even told, the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, that to remain single is okay. If you have the gift of singleness, that's okay. And it may well help you in the ministry. So there's elements of truth in this. But what was going down here was that these external self-denials were being taught as being essential to saving faith and Christian growth. And folks, that is at cross-purposes with God's truth of his grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone according to the scripture alone. Complete at cross purposes. Any teaching that denies the truth that believers are complete in Christ alone and, and insists that religious ceremony or some religious practice is needed to kind of cap the deal and, and to gain a, a right standing before God is false and we need to flee from it and be warned against it. And by the way, 
When you begin, when anyone begins to forbid what God allows, soon you will begin to allow what God forbids. That's the dangerous journey false teaching will lead you into. And fourthly, though the local church is wonderful, we must combat false teaching with the truth of Scripture. We see this happening in the last part of verse 3 and the end, uh, to the end of verse 4. And so what Paul does here is he weighs up what's being taught by these false teachers. And, and, and so what does he do? Does he come up with some philosophical argument or some logical... No, 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 no. no. He goes to the Scriptures. Just like Jesus, when he was tested in the wilderness, what did he do? He went to the Scriptures. And this is what the Apostle Paul... But the Apostle Paul goes right back to Genesis 1 to chapter 3. And he brings this truth to bear on this happening in the church at Ephesus. And we know that what we see in Genesis 1 to 3, it's all about the creation account and how God created everything that exists in six days. And at the end of that creation, what does God say? That it was okay? No, he said it was good. Uh, But then he kind of sealed it really up and he said it was very good, right? He said it was very good. So this is the truth that Paul brings to bear on this false teaching. God says all I have made, including marriage, is very good and is for the benefit of mankind, especially at the end of history, those who believe and know the truth. Marriage is good for all mankind, but folks, those who are so genuine believers, marriage is exceptionally good. Because you know what? We have the opportunity by displaying in our marriage, our marriages, the unity of the Godhead and the love for Christ that he has for the church. That's why marriage is exceptionally good for the believers, over and above what it is for unbelievers. Not that they cannot be blessed in the general common grace of God in marriage if they obey God's rule, but for the believer it's something extra and special. And so these false teachers were saying that there were certain aspects of God's creation that was not good. Some foods are not good. Marriage, well, to be spiritual and so forth, you have to, have to be celibate. So who are you going to believe? You're going to say, well... I'll just have to take some time out to think how I feel about this and I'll wait for God to speak to me in the middle of the night where I have some impression or maybe well, God will put it on my heart or some other statement like that. Or maybe I have an opinion on this. Is that what we're going to rely on? No, no. Paul just takes you right back to the scripture and he says, don't be confused by what these people are saying. Go to the Bible and listen to God. Do not listen to these false teachers, however persuasive they may be in their speech. Don't listen to them. He says, all God's creation is good because why? God is good. And whatever he made is good. And it's it's for our good and it's for our use if we receive it, what? Gratefully, that is with gratitude to God. And by the way, when it comes to foods and receiving it gratefully, I do hope, that we're all in the practice of giving thanks for food, right? Yeah, I, I see it as a bit of a trend, you know, we sit down for a meal table. We kind of don't sit down for meals like we once used to. We kind of, okay, you grab your meal, and you sit over here, and I sit over there, and different times, and kind of in that way the whole family unit has sort of lost a bit of its unity and functionality. 
But your mum and dad, when they sit down and when your dad open, it says, okay, let us give thanks for the food, he's not doing it because his father taught him or his church taught him. He is doing it because this is a commandment of Scripture. You be thankful for the food that you eat to God. That's a bit of a footnote. And so all of this should challenge us to know the Scriptures in order to use them truthfully and effectively because that's what the Apostle Paul did. We need to know the truth when we're confronted with false teaching. And then finally, though the local church is wonderful, God's creation is also very good and it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Folks, although we live in a fallen world where sin has even affected God's created world, never let us forget that this is still God's world. This planet is where God made man out of the dust of the earth and everything in it and on it was created by God as very good, a very good environment for mankind to live to the praise and glory of God. That's what he put us here for. He didn't put us on Mars. Forget about life being here or there or otherwise. God made planet earth for mankind to flourish in. Everything God spoke into existence was for the benefit of mankind and nothing he created is to be rejected. you get that? This whole creation was set apart. This is what we see in our text. It was sanctified by God, set apart for us to use and to flourish in. He said it was very good, right? As one of our old professors from many years ago, what God has called very good, let us be very careful not to junk it. Even the New Testament under the New Covenant cancels out all the Old Testament dietary regulations because the Old Testament, God commanded dietary regulations. They weren't to eat this food, that food or other food. But why did God do that? It was a temporary illustration that the people of Israel might obey so that they would demonstrate to all the heathen pagan nations around them that they were someone special. They were God's people. They were Yahweh's people. And that God has put a difference in them. And by their distinctively differentness, even in their dietary laws, they were to attract people to Yahweh himself. But of course we know they miserably failed, right? So that was a temporary measure so that they might be God's showcase to the nations around them. Jesus calls all food clean and acceptable in Mark chapter 7. And Jesus came what? He came to fulfill the law, right? And so he calls all food clean and acceptable. Peter discovers this, remember, in Acts chapter 10, when all those unclean animals come down, and all Peter says, oh, no, 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 Lord, they're unclean. And God says, what I have called clean, you do not call unclean. The writer of the Hebrews says the same thing over and over. And so to reimpose dietary restrictions and celibacy or any other ceremony is creating a works-based righteousness and is the teaching of demons. It denies the goodness of God's creation and robs them of the glory that he is due and it denies the truth of God's word. Mere externalism, often practiced in religious ceremony, and we see it rampant in the church today at large. Externalism that neither pleases God or promotes true spirituality. It happened in Israel. They were bringing the sacrifices and they were saying one thing, they were speaking out the side of their mouths. 
They were going through the motions, but their heart wasn't in it. God rebukes them over and over there through the prophets. Nothing is new and it's happening today. And so we're not to be externalists. If, if believers understand this truth and receive all things with prayerful thanksgiving, they can receive and enjoy all God's good gifts. And you know what? The best part? If all that God has given us and we receive it with gratitude to God, the best part is that God will be glorified. So when we sit down to a meal here tonight, I know that we're going to give thanks. One person will probably give thanks, but we're all going to say amen. And you know in that, God will be glorified. That's awesome, isn't it? That's what we're here for. It's the chief end of man is to glorify God. So what do we learn from this text in closing? Gone over a little bit of time here. We can learn this. We are to watch out for false members, for false teachers, and for false teaching. And he wants us to resist teaching by adhering to the truth of God's word. Paul also tells us that we're to use God's creation with prayerful thanksgiving as God has set it aside for us by his own word. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for your word. We don't say that lightly. There's not an atom of life or an aspect of life that is left out from you addressing. And Lord, even in our text today, you have spoken pertinently to us about the day in which we live and how we can be sucked in and seduced by the doctrines of demons. And in thinking about that, we know that our wrestle, our fight, our battle is not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. So Father, build in us, increase in us, cultivate in us a heart that longs for God, longs for his glory, a heart that that is saturated with such a love that we want to obey and walk in your ways like never before. Take us from this place to our homes, to our workplaces with a yearning to honour and glorify God and to know the truth of God's, of your word and to obey it and live by it. So Father, we give thanks and we pray your blessing upon each and every one of us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.